Good morning. You guys ready? All right, I feel like I say this every week, but we have a lot to cover. All right, so we're, we're walking through the book of Acts together, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We're looking at chapter 12 this morning. Uh, I also want to uh, just celebrate, and we are excited uh, for those of you especially who are watching online, and I know a lot of you looking at your Facebook pages are joining us from Myrtle Beach this week. Uh, and so you'll be excited to know that we are in our just young youth as a church website, online media, all that kind of stuff was just an afterthought for us. It was just we wanted to grow organically and just in, and, and be missional where we live, work, and play and, and see what God might do. And now we're kind of being forced into it by the pandemic. So uh, we're excited, though, that we have a new website, platforms for, for online media and services and just better ways for us to engage coming in the next couple of weeks. And so uh, that's just for, for you online to know we're, we're thinking about you. We love you. We understand uh, these are difficult times to gather together. Um, and I know uh, that Matt just prayed, but I always uh, believe wholeheartedly that prayer is not an afterthought in our church. It's not just for transitions and for the stage to be reset up here. Uh, it's the foundation for everything we do. I'm, I'm reminded of a story from Charles Spurgeon who said prayer is the engine of everything that he does. And Spurgeon was known as the Prince of Preachers. And uh, there's a, a really quick story. I don't have time for this, but this is just extra. Uh, of, of a group of men from America going to uh, his church there in England and, and asking him kind of war behind, you know, us as Americans, we just think there's a list, a checklist for everything to do, and we'll have the same success as everybody else, right? And so uh, they were asking him what the checklist is, and so he, he brought them down, and by the way, they didn't even know it was Spurgeon at the time. Uh, he just brings them down uh, underneath the sanctuary into this large room where 500 people are on their knees praying, and he said, this is the power engine of everything that happens during our service. And he said, I never preach a sermon without having people praying through the entire thing that God would move. So what he is speaking and what he was doing was not, a, was not ever believed by him to be in his power, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that's why we pray before every service. So I know Matt just did it. Some of you are going to be like, he just prayed and he just prayed. Um, but that's what we do here. Prayer is important. All right. Um, so let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that we get to dive into it. Thank you that it is living and active. God, thank you that it speaks to us in every uh, avenue and facet of life and all of us coming together this morning. We're going through different things. We, we're struggling with different things. We need to hear from you in different ways, and your word speaks the truth that our ears long to hear every time we read it. And God, we ask that your spirit would just move in power this morning. We recognize that we need you, and we need to hear from you, and we need to be connected to you. And so, God, we give this time to you. We pray that it would glorify and honor you. We ask that your spirit would just move in power and, and that those who do not know you would find life in you for the very first time and place their faith in, in the reality that you have done all the work by grace for us to have salvation and life and eternity in you. And God, for those of us that know you, I pray that you would deepen us in the reality of all that we are in you and all that you do. And it would cause us to give glory and praise and to live on your mission. God, we lift up the church of our city and everywhere that your word is being proclaimed this morning. We ask that you would come in power and add unto your church and build your people up. And Lord, we love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, now, when we read this text in just a moment, and we're going to read all 25 of the verses in Acts chapter 12, uh, you're going to kind of notice a couple of things if you're like me, uh, because there's a certain way, if you've been following along last week in chapter 11, at the very end of the chapter, we saw that the Antioch church as it launched, 
heard of a famine that was going to be taking place in the Jerusalem Judea church, and they took up a collection of everything that it could to send to them to encourage them and to help them through it, and Paul and Barnabas were taking that, right? And then at the end of chapter 12 and verse 25, we see that Paul and Barnabas go back to Antioch. It's like they get back, and now they have Mark with them. And, and so we kind of have this thing happening in between the story that we left off with next week. And then at, at the end of chapter 12, it's almost like a tack on verse, verse 25. It's like, and Paul and Barnabas just end up back in, in Antioch. And so it's almost like, why is this text even here? And, and it, it doesn't seem like it's necessary for the storyline of the book of Acts, yet we learn so much in it. We do see what's happening in the church in Jerusalem and the encouragement that they needed from, from Paul and Barnabas. We also get introduced back to Mark and, and how Mark is going to be used in missional journeys as the church moves forward throughout the book of Acts. But on top of the fact of, of just kind of seeing that this text doesn't really need to fit into this place, it's also a text that's really hard to determine what to focus on. Like typically, and we know and we understand that every text points to Christ. He's the centerpiece of every single text. Every text gets to the cross and the gospel. And, we, and typically we take the text and we see kind of the, the main focal point of what's happening and see it through a gospel-centered lens. Well, we have like five things in this text that we could just spend a whole week focusing on. And at some point during this week, I've kind of gone to this place of thinking, we just need to focus on this one part of this text this week. And maybe we need to spread this, this chapter into five weeks so we can touch all five of these topics in, in, a, in a way that we, I feel like is necessary for us to do. Um, but we're already spending about a year in the book of Acts, and so five weeks in one chapter just isn't something that we need to kind of take on. And so here's, here's the deal. It might be a little bit different than normal, but we're just going to walk through, and we won't be able to do it to the extent that we would love to, but we're going to walk through just this text and these five things and see it through the lens of the gospel truth. And it's here. We're here. So, so why not? Amen? Amen? All right. Some of you are with me a lot more than, uh, than the nine o'clock hour. And so I had to pray for them again, but you guys seem like you're there. So let's look at chapter 12, starting in verse one. About that time. So this again is after Barnabas and Saul, we know as Paul, were taking the offering from the Antioch church to the church in Jerusalem. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. And here's the first thing that we see here of these five things. Suffering in the church, persecution in the church. And we're going to see that this isn't just persecution in theory. This is actual personal suffering of the people of God. He kills James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of the unleavened bread, and he had seized him. He put him in prison. He couldn't do anything during uh, the Passover week. So he puts him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. That's 16 soldiers. That's significant. We're going to see that in just a few moments. Intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God from the church, from the people of God. That's the second thing that we could spend an entire week on, earnest prayer in the people of God in the face of all things. Verse 6, now when Herod was to bring him out, 
On that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound. And here we see the sovereignty of God and his plan. Another topic that we will see, the third thing. Two soldiers bound with, uh, in between two soldiers, bound with chains, and sentries before the door and guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and light shone in his cell. He struck Peter on the side. And that word struck there is the most powerful word for struck in the Greek language. And so we get this idea that Peter is really sleeping. And the angel has to kind of kick him a couple of times. And he woke up saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off of his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And we're not sure why Peter was naked, but the angel helps him out a little bit. And wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him, and he didn't know what was being done by the angel. He was real, but he thought that he was seeing a vision. So Peter's so entranced and asleep, so at peace and asleep, he thinks he's just having a dream. Verse 10, when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, and it opened for them on its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, so about one block, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many people, notice this, were gathered and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came and answered, recognizing Peter's voice. In her joy, she didn't open the gate, but ran to report that Peter was standing at the gate. She's like one of my kids when somebody comes to the door. They just run around the house saying somebody's knocking, right? It's like, well, get the door. They said to her, you are out of your mind, right? So keep in mind, they're, they're there. They've been praying for days during the Passover week. This is the night before Herod is going to take Peter out to the people to put him on trial to murder him. And they've been praying all this time. And then they hear that an answer has come to the prayer that they have given. And they're like, you're out of your mind. And some of them insisted that it, that, and kept saying that it was his angel. Maybe God is just revealing that Peter's okay now and Herod has already taken his life. But mentioning to them with his, uh, or, but finally he continued knocking. And he, they went and opened the door and they saw him and they were amazed. Verse 17, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison and said, tell these things to James. And this is another James. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who writes the book of James in the Bible. And tell the brother. So he's saying, tell the whole church. And then he departed and went to another place. And this is the fourth thing that we see, that God in his sovereign plan encourages the church in all that he is doing, that he is in complete control. And when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers, that's to say the least, over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him, he did not find him. He examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down to Judea, to Caesarea, and spent some time there. We know historically that he actually had a castle there. And so he's really upset. He needs to think of another way to gain some power and popularity. Now Herod was angry in the people of, at the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him in one accord, and having persuaded Blastus to kind of be a mediator, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them, the savior of the people, to bring food to these cities. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. 
And immediately, one of the most strangest verses in all of Scripture, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give the glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And then here we go, verse 25, just the tack on verse that lets us know that this is all happening in between these other two things. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem. And when they completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now we see a lot of things in this text. And, and we've talked as we've been walking through the book of Acts, we've talked extensively as we've gone through the book, how important it is that we constantly whether we're followers of Christ or we are not followers of Christ. Maybe you're in here seeking and you have questions. Maybe you're a follower of Christ and you just want to grow and you want to know him more and grow in community with him and his people. But it is essential for us to constantly in life ask ourselves the question and always put it before us, where do I find life? Where do I find my value? Where do I find my purpose and my my place and my identity and my, my worth? Because that question is so important for us. It's perhaps the most important question that we can constantly have before us to ensure that we are actually pursuing and living and, and, and striving in the direction that we are actually created to. And we know that we are created to walk in that direction by the grace of God. But outside of the grace of God, we will strive and we will move in our own accomplishments and in our own uh, strength. And it will actually lead us away from everything that we long for and were created for. But if we can't ask ourselves the question constantly, what gives me life and purpose and value and worth, then we will never actually be moving in one direction at all towards the goal that we actually long for. Now, if it's in God, you'll actually find what you are searching for. If it's not in God, then you will never find what you are striving for. But if we don't ask ourselves at least this question constantly, then we'll never actually move in any kind of direction at all. Where do I find life? And this question will determine how you see everything that you do. It will determine how you see every other people. It will determine how you relate to other people and things that God has created. It will determine how you define even your own identity and self. Where do I find life? And we've talked about how when we find life in self, we will turn to the things of the world for value. We'll find our worth in things that God has created to only point to his ultimate worth and the result will be to elevate ourselves and the things that we find life in over other things. And this will cause for us all kinds of problems for our own identity and certainty. We'll be insecure. We'll be fearful. We'll be anxious. We'll be worried as we're constantly worried. Are we chasing the right thing? Have I gotten something that I can't afford to lose, but I understand in the world that we live in that it can constantly or instantly be taken away at any point? And so it will cause all kinds of problems in our own identity, but it will also cause all kinds of problems in the way we relate to other people. It will cause all kinds of problems in the culture that we create as a people. They won't be intentional things because we were all created in the image of God. We still long to be in community with him, to know him, to, to have everything that we were created to have in him. And, and those desires in us should point us to the reality that we long for God and he is everything that we desire in all of life. We still want those things, but, but we can't figure out how to have them in and of ourselves. So all of these problems are unintentional problems, 
but they're inevitable. Because outside of God, we're finding our value in things of the world and we are elevating those things and self and our accomplishments and they will begin to cause issues in everything that we do with all the people we're around and the culture that we create. See, we've talked about how only the grace of God can begin to restore when we find our identity and value and worth in life and the fact that God himself understood that in our rebellion, there's no way that we could be brought back into the connection with him that we were created to have. And he himself comes down. Jesus lives and he lives on our behalf, fulfilling everything that we cannot fulfill on our own. And he dies on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin. And he rises from the grave so that we can be saved by his grace. And when we place our faith in the reality that he's done everything it takes for us to have salvation and life and eternity, then we're brought back into community with him. And because of his resurrection, we can have new life in him. We can be restored in him. And we can begin to define ourselves and find life and find value in who we are in him by his grace. Not by our work and accomplishments, but his work and accomplishments on our behalf. And that changes the way that we see everything around us and everyone around us. It begins to change the culture that we create and what the church should appear and and how the church should image who we are in Christ to the rest of the world. But if we're not in Christ... Or we are in Christ, but we're not constantly asking ourselves, where do we find life? See, we constantly have to be preaching that gospel truth to ourselves. If not, in a world that has a sea of false gospels that are constantly being proclaimed to us, then we will tend to, listen, even in our professing Christ as Lord and Savior, seek life in created things where life is not found. And you will just begin to always find yourself veering away from the one thing you even proclaim as a Christian to give you life. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We constantly have to ask ourselves, where do I find life and center ourselves in the gospel? Because if we find life in anything else, it will affect the way that we see people and it will affect the way that we see things and relate to them and we will relate to them wrongly. And we've seen this in, throughout the book of Acts and how it relates to prejudice and how prejudice arises and racism and elitism and, and all of these things that, that bring disunity amongst peoples. And ultimately what it does is it creates rivalries. And, and see, rivalries, we, we kind of in our culture, we think of those mostly as fun-loving things. Like, I like this team, you like this team, and so we don't like each other, ha, ha, ha. Right? Like, it's, they're kind of fun-loving but even those small rivalries in us, the, the, the ones we call fun-loving, they are a depiction or a picture of something much greater that is happening. They're not as innocent, maybe, as we might think. Because what we tend to do is, in life is we find our value in something, and then we become very, very passionate about it. It gives us some kind of worth, whether it's the value and worth that we find all of our identity in, or if it's just a small part of what we find value and worth in. And we'll get really passionate about those things, and then a rival will occur, right? Like in college basketball, we have our Tar Heels, and we have our Duke Blue Devils. And depending on the color blue you are wearing, we can be friends or we cannot be friends, right? This is true. It really happens. 
It's fun. I'll tell you a story, like, because mine's more college football, right? And so when you get into Major League Baseball and stuff, it's like Yankees and Red Sox. When you get into college football, really the biggest rival is like Notre Dame versus college football, right? Like, it's just like, where do you guys fit and where do y'all belong? We don't know. Um, And they kind of had a little bit of a scare there when we went to conference play this year. Uh, If you guys don't know anything about football, just take a nap for one second. Um, And they got into a conference play this year and they were like, well, what are we going to do? Uh, and that was just my moment of saying, well, join the rest of college football, okay? So, um, but, but we see these rivalries all in us, and, and I grew up right outside of Atlanta, Georgia, and my grandparents lived right out off the campus of, of University of Georgia, and so I grew up playing on their practice field. They didn't even have, used to have a fence around the thing, and so uh, we would just be able to go out and play on it, so uh, I just grew up a, a huge Georgia Bulldog fan. And there were a time in my life, I mean, I had to take several years away because of this, of just like watching games because it would ruin my day or make my day, uh, whether or not my team won or lost. But there were times in my life when I would go to the games and I would judge a person's character and whether or not I liked them by the color of shirt they were wearing. And it's a small thing. We call that a fun rivalry, but it's revealing something of a heart issue that I have. It's revealing a foundational issue where I begin to judge people based on their preferences or who they are, what they like, or in this case, even the color of the shirt. And then it turns into these much bigger things. See, all of these are something that comes from something very foundational. And suddenly we start having rivals in politics and and, in race and ethnicity and all these other ways that we can come against one another. And we begin to relate to everything through the lens of what we find value in life in. And, and we, then we judge people on the other side as a rival or an enemy. And this takes place in so many different things. It's so natural for us outside of finding ourselves in the grace of God. Now, with life in him, by his grace, the worldly distinctives and likes that we have or the things that we define ourselves by, when we see ourselves by who, through who we are in Christ, by his grace and his grace alone, that completely weeds out our enemies of race and culture and nationality and language and gender and age. All the characteristics that we begin to realize reflect the image of God that we were created in. We no longer are enemies or rivals because we're not finding our identity in those things, but in the work of Christ on our behalf. We can become friends with those who we once lifted value over because we were different than they were and found life in something different than they did. And the grace of God also allows us to love one another even while we can still enjoy different preferences, right? For example, now we can still have that friendly rivalry of liking different teams, but I don't have to judge you for the color of your shirt anymore. We can still love one another. We can still be friends with one another, though we are different. But all of this stems from a foundational and ultimate rivalry, and it is the rivalry of where do I find life? Do I find life in the kingdom of darkness and sin and brokenness because I am God and I want to determine my own way and my own salvation and my own philosophy of life, and I want to determine everything that I believe that I need to do to accomplish, to become who I want to be, or the kingdom of God? Do I want to find myself in who God says I am? Do I want to be saved by his grace and find my identity in who he is and who he is alone? Now, it is a rivalry, but God wins. 
But we see this as a foundational thing in humanity and the way that we, since sin entered into the world and rebellion against God entered into the world, we are now born in rebellion against God and we see God as a rival, not as the one we were created to have community and life in. Suddenly he becomes our enemy, not our God and not our Savior and not the one that we worship and find life in, but we are our own God and we rival him. And at this foundational level, it begins to perpetrate everything else in our lives. And we see that in this text. It bookends the text that we just read. Through the life of Herod and then how the church actually responds to this. So look quickly with me what it says. We'll spend a little bit of time on these first two things and then look at the rest of the story really quickly. But at the time, it says that Paul and Barnabas would come back um, I've gone from Antioch to Jerusalem to deliver and encourage the things that the church had collected for them. Herod the king, right, which we know a lot about Herod the king. We're not going to get into the details of it, but you can read a lot about him historically. The one thing I do want you to know is where he finds life. Herod finds life in power and popularity, and it's very well documented in the history of everything that he did. And because he finds life and popularity and power, he actually becomes a slave to everyone around him for popularity and for power. See, this is how it works when we find life in self or in the things of the world. We find ourselves enslaved to the things of the world. I have to act in the way that these things tell me I need to act to accomplish them and to have them and to get more of them. I need to act in the way that these people tell me that I need to act so that I fit in with them, so I'm liked by them and I, I, I gain from them what I need. We become enslaved to everything around us, and even the king at this point is enslaved to his own people. But see, grace actually sets us free to live in the way that we were created to live. And to make a long story short here, he felt like to get this popularity and power, he had to please both Rome, who put him in charge, and the traditional religious Jewish people that he is in charge of. And so in order to do that, he knows that, that both of these people have a little bit of problem with this really rapidly growing movement called Christianity. They feel a little bit threatened. Rome by threatened in their power, and the Jewish people threatened in their tradition, and so he thinks, if I'm going to be popular and gain power, then what I need to do is take one of the leaders of the church. How about an apostle who worked and walked with Jesus in his inner circle, who has been a leader in the church, and, and I will display my power by taking his life. And so he beheads James. And it was a completely political reason. Like James was not breaking any kind of law. The church were model citizens. They were not trying to overthrow any governments. They were not trying to shift or change any kind of culture. They were a people who wanted to see the people of their cities come to faith and the culture change as it may. But they wanted to see people know life is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. And so he, for popularity and power, has him killed. And then he sees that this actually pleases the Jewish people. So he thinks to himself, man, if that pleased them, then what if I go out and get Peter? This will really kind of give me, get me on the right side with the people in Rome. This will really get me on the right side with the traditional Jewish people here in the city. 
And so he goes out and he arrests Peter, but it's the time of the Passover, so it's not going to please the Jews if he kills Peter right away. So he puts him in prison for the week, and he has this huge plan, this Jesus-like plan to, to parade him out in front of the people, to have a false trial so that he can murder him, and to gain popularity and power with the people. So he has killed James, and he now has Peter in prison. Now, he's doing all of this again for the wrong reason. And, and all of us can look at this and say, this is not something he should do just for popularity and for power. But listen to me, when you find life in self and value and worth in the things of the world, it is shocking what you will find yourself doing. If you believe that something of the world will solve the problems of the world, then you will justify doing anything to gain what you think is needed. And you will be willing to pay any cost as long as it doesn't cost you anything. And we see that in our culture today. And so we end up with James, the first apostle, being killed for his faith. And I don't want us to just gloss over that really quickly. We could just kind of say, hey, the church is going to be persecuted, and that means you're going to be persecuted in some way too if you're a follower of Christ. But I think there's something really deep happening here. See, this is the first apostle who has given his life for his faith and it's a defining moment for the church. James is a leader in the church. He's the brother of John, who's a leader in the church. He has been with the church since the very beginning. These people call him brother. He has discipled them. He has built them up. He has sent out many people. And so this is a defining moment for them, an apostle. And the church has to be thinking, wow, we thought that if anybody was untouchable, it was the ones who walked with Jesus. Especially, especially James. Man, like if, if James is not protected by God under the rule of Rome, then how can we expect anything? And so they're probably questioning God, why is this happening? And we have this pivotal moment maybe for the church that could change the path and direction for the church of the future in Jerusalem if we don't have the, the, this text and the importance of what we see God do in it. See, the church is not just being persecuted here. They are deeply feeling suffering. This is not just the persecution of the church. It's the suffering of God's people. And they feel it. And to add to that, James the apostle has been killed, but now Peter is in prison to be killed. Two apostles. And so the church has got to be kind of thinking, man, what is going on? How can this happen? Where do we go from here? We know that Herod is, is about to try to kill Peter, so we're going to see that they're all praying. We'll get to that in just a few moments. But this is a critical moment in the life of the church. But then look at Peter as well. I, I love this part of the story and how Luke gives us this because it says that Herod has put him in jail. He's put four squads of people around him. So he's arrested him for the Passover time. He's waiting for that to come to a close so that he can kill him as well and gain popularity and power. And, and he understands something special is happening with this God that Peter is proclaiming. I love this because you look at four, 16 soldiers. Like Herod's putting Peter in maximum security prison of the time. And Peter was a fisherman. Like the Bible kind of lets us know that he wasn't necessarily the sharpest tool in the shed either. There's nothing about Peter that says he's going to get out of this prison. 
But Herod, even in his denial of God to be God, cannot help but recognize that there is power in the God that Peter proclaims. And see, Herod has an opportunity here. He could listen and learn and wrestle with the the pride that he has to, to find his own way and to be his own God and realize that the God that Peter is proclaiming is everything that he longs for and fulfills him. And he doesn't have to be enslaved to the people and things of the world, but he can be set free to to know God and to experience everything that he was created to have in him. But rather than Herod taking the time to realize that that he might not be the God he's looking for, in his pride, he doubles down on what he thinks and where he thinks life is found. And we do that so often in our lives. In our pride, rather than listening and and working through and wrestling with and surrendering to God who created us to have community with him by his grace, we double down in our pride on what we think will give us life in the world and we never find it. And, and I just love this because God just reveals through this that his power is, it just makes humorous the power of man and how he's going to reveal himself in this text. So we see what Herod does and we're just kind of like, why? Like God is in complete control here and he doesn't see Herod put 16 soldiers around Peter and put him in the inner cell of the prison and, and kind of create this max security situation. God does not look at that and say, ooh, I didn't plan for the 16 soldiers. What do I do now? No, God's completely in control. And if, and if it is Peter's time to go, he will go. But if it is God's plan to use Peter in his church further, then Peter understands to live as Christ and die as gain. And, and I will not go anywhere from this planet or do anything from this planet or face any kind of persecution that God is not in control and working through. And, and I want us to, to, to be comforted by this for a moment. Because we can all imagine what the church might be going through here. Every single one of us has faced devastating suffering in our lives. Whether it's persecution or it's because of just sin and we live in a broken world, maybe it's our own sin. But we've all come to moments like the church is coming to this moment where the world just absolutely feels out of control. And and we think to ourselves, how, I, I can't even comprehend what's happening. Like, how could a loving God allow this? How could this take place? How do I reconcile this with what I know to be true of God? And, and, and certainly when, when I talk about suffering, listen, I, I'm not talking about suffering in theory that God is in control and he is always good and he always works for the good of those who love him. We're not, we're not trying to just give. Those are true things that we can deeply rest in. But I'm not just talking about the theory of God is with you. There is deep suffering that we go through. And when I speak of it, I'm not speaking of it again in theory, but having gone through things that I've seen God just show up and and be in control of and, and, and work through in my own life. Me personally, but also in the position that I'm in, I, I like you, many of you have had friends who have died from cancer. I, I've had 24-year-old men sit in my office and say that they feel like God is calling them to, to ministry and they want me to disciple them and then get in their car a few days later, lose control, hit a tree, and lose their life. 
I've sat with a 17-year-old boy who also felt called into ministry that I was walking with, and we, we met, I met him at the hospital. I'll never forget as his mom was struggling with ALS and had gotten to the final stages of it and holding her hand and praying with him and her as she's in her final moments of life and the only emotion that she could even share in that time were the tears that were rolling down her face. And just a few days later, a 17-year-old boy has to watch the doctors pull the plug on his mom. And he struggled, and how, how do I believe, and how do I move forward, and what is God doing? And, and all we can do is, is pick up the pieces. I've stood with parents who are just praying that God would allow their newborn babies to live. And, and, and stories could go on and on. And in my position, and really as Christians, we don't just view uh, suffering of other people and, and recognize and thank God that it's not us. We, we mourn with those who mourn and we weep with those who weep. We feel what they feel. And there are moments in life that will cause you to think everything's out of control. And, and I don't see how God is working in this, but we need to know, and I think this text gives us the confidence to understand that God is in control. That we can trust him in everything. He governs over all. He draws his people near to him through everything. He reveals himself to the world around us in the way that we are drawn near to him through our deepest sufferings. And he is making all things new. He is restoring. And if you are his and you are finding life in him, then you can proclaim with Paul, I can be afflicted in every way but not crushed. I can be perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, confused but not alone, seemingly out of control but never lost. And you want to know how you can trust that God is good? You want to know how you can trust that he's in control? You want to know how you can trust that he is working the, to the good of all those who love him? That, that you can rest in your salvation in him and he is restoring all things new. And that every prayer that you have and every desire that you have for something to be made right that is wrong. You want to know how you can trust the reality that every prayer like that and every desire like that for something to be made new is the answer yes from God, whether it's now or in eternity? You can look to the cross. You can look to his resurrection. See, if the God of the universe who created all things is willing to come down and serve and die, that we might experience greater things than anything he has created, but be brought back into community with him, then we should immediately understand that there is something that we find life in that is greater than anything we see and experience in this world. And that is what we find our hope in. That's where we find our life. And that re reality means he is working all things to the good of those who love him. And no matter how bad your day is today and how soul-crushing it might feel, every day is leading towards an eternity of perfect days with him. Amen. Where every tear is wiped away and everything is made right and good. And I know it's hard to see how he rules. 
I mean, his ways are infinitely greater than ours. His wisdom is infinitely greater than ours. But listen to me, I do agree with Tim Keller when he says, if we knew all that God knew, we would want exactly what we have. And in him, and finding life in him, we are losing nothing when we suffer in this world of everything we find life in. And when we gain what we would call blessing in this world, we are gaining nothing of what we would find life in. Everything is in him and him alone. And we have it forever as his children. Because when we place our faith in him, we are not just saved, but we are made children of God. It's what John Stott calls the greatest reality of the gospel truth. That we can see God as father and he loves us and treats us like a perfect father. That's what our hope is in today. And that's what our hope is in tomorrow. And his grace is sure. And listen, I don't know what you're going through. I know that there will still be pain and there will still be tears and there will still be all kinds of things that we need one another and shoulders to cry on. But I want you to know that he's in control and his grace is sure to you each and every day. Annie Johnston Flint wrote this poem. She struggled her whole life with multiple cancers, uh, rheumatoid arthritis to the point that she couldn't move. She was bedridden. She had to have other people even write the things that she wrote, but God gave her these words. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiply trials, his multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed, ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. Fear not that thy shall exceed his provisions, or God ever yearns his resources to share. Lean hard on the arm of everlasting availing. The Father, both thee and thy load, will upbear. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power, no boundaries known unto man. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. He is in control. He is with you no matter what you are facing. And he is sovereign over all things and he will encourage you in his grace. I want us quickly to see the rest of the story and what the church does to experience the freedom that they have in Christ and the grace that he gives to them. Look what they are doing. During this whole time when they could be falling apart and wondering what is next and why is this happening and why did James die and Peter live and all of these things. And I'm sure they had all of those questions, but they go to God. Their first response is not what we can do to fix it. How do we huddle together and figure it all out and do what we can do and work the hardest we can to make all of this right? But they go to God for what only he can do. And we see that there are people in prayer, of earnest prayer. They're seeking after him passionately to do. And I want us to know this morning that, that the avenue or the highway in which our heart aligns with God and we understand his word in a deeper way and we grow in deeper community together and the highway in which the grace of God and the peace of God and the comfort of God and the understanding of who we are in him is prayer. It is the greatest tool that we have to experience all that we are in Christ at the deepest level. It's the greatest missional tool that we have. In fact, one missionary said that if the person or the one who is able to mobilize the church to pray would start the greatest missional movement in the history of mankind. 
See, prayer is the power that God has given us to understand him and to grow in him and for our heart to be as his heart, our desires to be as his desire, his, his grace to be known and for our passion to be his passion that we might be on the ministry for his glory that he has sent us on that we might see many people come to faith and grow in him. And we must be a people of prayer. It is where we are to turn. It has to be foundational for the people of God. God does powerful things in this text. And I don't want us to miss the reality that it's, it's because of the people of God in prayer. It's the foundation for everything that God is doing. It's the foundation for everything Jesus did when he was on earth. He was constantly going to God in prayer. He's constantly calling us to prayer. And we must be a people of God. And I can't help but think, God, what are you waiting to do in our church and in our city? Because we're not a people of prayer. See, they go to him and, and they, they seek after him in everything. And then look what happens. An angel shows up for Peter. He kicks him. He wakes him up. And really quickly, he gets him out of the jail and he, he leads him a block away. Everything just opens up to them. And then the, the angel just disappears and Peter's standing there and he finally kind of comes to and realizes what had just happened. And, and again, Peter was just sleeping in the jail cell. Like, is that what we would do on potentially our last night on earth? See, he's at such peace with who he is in Christ and where he finds life that no matter what happens to him the next day, it is well with his soul. To be with God for all of eternity, I, I want that. But if God leaves me here, then I will build his church. And so what does he do when he realizes that he has come to and that God has set him free? He understands not the first move is to get out of town and get to safety, but the church needs to be encouraged because they've been praying for days and they have been suffering hard and they have been wondering what is next and why God is allowing these things and, and they need to be encouraged. And so he goes to where they know they are because they are a praying people. So he doesn't have a cell phone to text Mary and see if they're all getting together. The culture of the people of God was prayer. And they gather together to do so. So he goes straight there to encourage them. And he knocks on the door and, and Rhoda understands and, and hears his voice and recognizes his voice. And I just want to encourage you that we need to be a people who are entrenched in God's word enough and the people of God enough that we are known deep enough to know that people understand what's happening in our lives and they are constantly in prayer for us. And when they hear my voice, they know who I am. That's how well they know me. And so she goes in there and tells all the people that Peter's there. Their prayers are being answered. And God is apparently doing something way greater than they ever could have asked or imagined because they were probably just praying that Peter would have peace or Herod would change his mind or something that we could explain in humanity. But God does something that's unexplainable and only can be done in the power of God. And Peter shows up and they finally acknowledge that after they argue a little bit theologically on how God would actually do something if he were to do something, how they denied it and they kind of called her crazy and they finally get to the door and Peter's there. And what does he do? He encourages them. He fans the flame of everything that God is doing them as we talked about last week. He disciples them and he tells them to go and tell the rest of the church. 
And I love how in verse 12, it says that when Peter came to, he realized everything that was happening. He, he investigated, he looked at every angle and everything that was going on that God had just done, and then he responds. So he reflected on what God had done, and the only thing that he desired to do was to go and, and share all that God had done. And when we reflect on the glory of God and his grace in our lives, all we will want to do is share it with others. And just as much as you need to reflect to grow in your faith and understanding of where you find life, other people need to hear you praise God for what he's doing in your life that they might grow in their faith and finding life in Christ as well. And he strengthens the church and they go out and in verse 24, it says that the, the church continued to multiply. The gospel can't be stopped. You can find life in anything that you want to find life in, but only finding it in Christ is what we find life in that actually will satisfy and is eternal. And we end the text with the warning. See, Herod's mad, and so he goes away, and he, he, he kind of creates this other opportunity for him to gain popularity and power where he tries to find life with these other two cities, and they need the city and, and the people of Herod. And so they come to him and try to make a deal with him, and Herod gets on his big throne and says, I'll make a deal with you, and I'll feed you, and I'll be your savior and Josephus, in a Roman historian, actually tells us, and, and he tells us of this account, that he came out on this two-day party, he invited Caesar so everybody would come. And on day two, he comes out in this silver robe made of silver that glistens in the sun. He gives this speech of how he's going to take care of the people. And because that's what the people want, they call him a god. And it's a mutual using but immediately when he gives this speech, Josephus says that he fell holding his stomach and he was taken off of the stage. And five days later, he passed away and they found worms in his stomach. And what we see here is that what we find life in, in the things of the world, no matter how high we might get, we can be king and everybody can call us God, but your life will end and everything that you have built will crumble. But when we find life in Christ, we have eternity in him as his children, and his church will continue to grow. We even see the church send Mark with Saul and Barnabas, that the mission will continue. Here's my question. Where do you find life?